drop-off. Seasonal programs, including leaf drop, tree cycle, mulch giveaway, recycle your holiday lights, and others. We understand that paying for trash service may be new. Know that with these changes, we can reduce the amount of waste households send to the landfill by as much as 50% and lead the way as a more sustainable city. We appreciate your patience as we grow these programs and we acknowledge it'll be challenging at first. Our community has shown us that you value moving the needle on sustainability and we're going to push forward with our commitment, taking every measure we can to make it easy for residents to waste less and protect our environment. Together, we can do this. Visit denvergov.org slash expanded collection for more information. Independent Audit Committee was established by charter and receives audit reports and other information from the Denver Audit Office. The committee strives to bring greater clarity, transparency, and accountability to Denver's city government and its residents. It is also responsible for commissioning an annual audit of the city's annual comprehensive financial report. This committee is chaired by Auditor Timothy M. O'Brien. Uh, good morning. I'd like to call the May 18th meeting of the Independent Audit Committee to order. Uh, first item on our agenda, uh, Edie, would you be kind enough to take the roll? Jack Blumenthal? Here. Lorraine Mack? Here. Charles Side? Here. Edward Schultz? Here. Tim O'Brien? Here. Um, first meeting in a long time without Rudy Payan as a member of the Audit Committee. and. Um, you know, Rudy, I, I hope you're out there watching, and uh, we miss you. <laughs> uh, I'd like to uh, also welcome Jack Blumenthal as the vice chairman of the audit committee. Uh, he has graciously accepted uh, the assignment to step in those big shoes left by Rudy. Um, so the next item on our agenda is the approval of the April 20th meeting minutes. The minutes are in order. Is there a motion to approve? So moved. Second. Second. Thank you. Uh, any objections? Any discussion? All in favor? Say aye. Aye. <clears throat> any opposed? Thank you. Uh, next item, report briefing on citywide information technology purchases. 
Uh, Dawn, would you like to introduce yourself and the team? Sure, sure. I'm Dawn Wiseman. I'm the audit director on the engagement. So good morning, Auditor O'Brien, audit committee members and guests. Um, just a few words before um, I turn it over to Nick to introduce his team. Um, this audit just demonstrates the importance of making sure that city agencies get the proper approval for technology purchases. They may see, it may seem like it's a small purchase, but it may not be. So going through the proper approval process is really what's gonna keep our network and our data secure. So um, I, I'll turn it over to Nick to introduce his team and then we'll turn it over to the agency and we'll start the briefing. Thanks, Don. Mm -hmm. uh, so good morning, audit committee, committee members. Uh, my name is Nick Jamraglo. I'm the information systems audit lead for the citywide IT purchases audit we're presenting this morning. I'm joined here at the table with Dave Hancock and Rob Farrell, both information systems auditors. Uh, this was a large audit and I just wanna take a moment to thank technology services for all the work that you do, um, being transparent and cooperative and just keeping our technology safe and secure. So thank you. Um, I'll give you a chance to introduce yourselves. Sure. Thank you. Yep. Uh, good morning, auditor committee. Good morning, team. Uh, my name is Chris Todd. I'm the chief technology officer for the city. Uh, to my right here is Ashley Bolton. She is the chief data and information security officer uh, with me today. I just want to thank, again, your audit team for another very professional, collaborative process that we've gone through, very eye-opening findings, and we appreciate the work. So looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you. All right, thank you. So let's begin. All right. Uh, so beginning on page one of the report, we talk about the various technology used to store and share data at the city. This includes hardware, software, and cloud services. Purchasing technology at the city can be done in three different ways, as shown on figure one of the report. The first way is through a purchase order. In this scenario, the technology is requested, the purchase order is submitted and approved, and the technology is purchased. The second way is by purchasing technology out of pocket, then submitting an expense reimbursement, which is approved, and then the employee is reimbursed. And the third way is by purchasing technology through a purchase card. These cards are issued by the controller's office and assigned to employee cardholders for purchases under $2,000. However, this is explicitly prohibited by Executive Order 18. The city's Executive Order 18 states that, te that technology services has authority and is required to review and approve all acquisitions of technology. However, this has not always been the case. In the 2005 version of the, of the order, the city did not require technology services to review and approve all technology purchases. This led to agencies purchasing technology with little to no involvement with technology services, which created concerns since there was no security or architectural compatibility reviews being performed. Therefore, in January 2021, the mayor updated Executive Order 18, granting authority to technology services over city agencies, departments, divisions, and other government entities that operate on the city's network. Since then, technology services ha has had better control over the creation of uncontrolled and unsecured devices being used on the city's network that would otherwise put the city at risk. The city's network is a complex infrastructure that comprises all cables, access points, switches, routers, and other components that allow devices to connect to internal servers and other internal subnetworks. 
Technology Services manages and maintains the city's local area network, which consists of over 40 entities, including city agencies under the mayor, independent agencies such as the Denver Art Museum, and the judicial and legislative branches of government. These entities rely on technology services to support their technology is functioning properly. Some agencies on the network, such as Denver County Courts, Denver Public Library, and, and others, have their own sub-network. Technology services is responsible for the initial setup of these sub-networks, but it does not provide ongoing support because these agencies manage their own sub-networks and technology. We audited citywide information technology purchases to assess whether agencies, departments, and other branches of government in the city are following Executive Order 18 requirements when making technology purchases. Our audit focused on technology purchases that were made with a purchase card or reimbursed through expense reports. We reviewed transactions and processes from January 13th, 2021 through October 31st, 2022. Technology purchases that were pre-approved through a purchase order were not in scope. We provided six recommendations to technology services for stronger policies, review processes, define technology purchases, and improve training. Before I pass this on to Dave and Rob, who will cover the findings and recommendation, uh, I just wanted to see if technology services had any comments. No, I, I just want to thank you again. Um, I just want to share that um, I came from the city of Littleton where we didn't have the luxury of working with an auditor's office and being new here. I just can't thank you enough. I feel like a kid in a Christmas store in the sense of handing this information to us. We believe in the spirit of continuous improvement and so are really looking forward to discussing these recommendations. Well, well thank you for that. Um, I'll pass it on to Dave now. Thank you, Nick. Finding one starts on page five of the report. We found city agencies bypass necessary approval for information technology purchases when they use purchase cards and expense reimbursements. In our purchase card and expense reimbursement sample testing, we found almost all city agencies and departments citywide use purchase cards or the expense reimbursement process, which is bypassing required approval of the city's technology services agency when purchasing technology equipment and services. These methods of buying technology also violate requirements in the city's executive order number 18. As we show in figure three, also on page five, we looked at a sample of 143 purchase card transactions and a sample of 71 expense reimbursement transactions from January 13th, 2021 through October 31st, 2022. For the purchase card transactions, we found 92% were not approved by technology services and violated executive order 18. 4% included documented approvals for agencies to use their purchase card, which also violates the executive order. And 4% were not technology purchases. For the 71 expense report, expense reimbursement transactions, we found 86% had no evidence of pre-approval or approval for the technology purchase. 6% were made by technology services staff, but not pre-approved by agency managers, and 8% were not technology purchases. On page six, we described that for the purchase card 
and expense reimbursement transactions that were not approved before the technology purchase, we found technology services had no documented policies and procedures to address acceptable exceptions. Not obtaining prior approval and bypassing the approval process exposes the city to several risks, including incompatibility issues and security vulnerabilities, data protection and privacy concerns, and missed opportunities for cost savings in the form of bulk discount pricing and missing requirements to review and approve a technology purchase. Technology services has created some controls, however, to detect unauthorized technology, as we describe on page seven. We found compensating controls have been created to detect the addition of hardware, software, and cloud services to protect the city's network. Technology services also has security controls to detect when technology has been added to the network. Functionality to shut down unauthorized hardware and software, as well as restrict access to websites used for cloud services. Technology services did not, though, ask the controller's office to build spin categories into the city's system of record to support the approval workflow for purchase cards and expense reimbursements, as they did for purchase order transactions. Adding these workday spending categories, as well as implementing comprehensive training, would help to prevent technology purchase requests from bypassing the required technology services approval. Figure four on page eight shows the three technology services teams that currently approve technology purchase requests in Workday, which should also be added to the purchase card and expense reimbursement approval workflows. Federal guidance states that adding automated and manual controls to detect issues is a leading practice. Staff in both technology services and the controller's office told us Workday can enforce a similar approval workflow as is done with purchase order requests. We have two recommendations for this finding. First, recommendation 1.1, which can be found on page eight of the report. The city's technology services agency should revise policy and procedure to reflect when a purchase card can be used to make technology purchases. The agency has agreed implementation by December 31st, 2023. Second, we have recommendation 1.2 on page nine of the report the city's technology services agency should work with the controller's office to determine requirements for monitoring and ensuring pre-approval of technology purchases. Options include developing a catalog of pre-approved technology purchase types in ServiceNow that connects with Workday's workflows, standardizing memo line entries with codes to better flag technology purchases or create flags based on keywords in Workday, adding spin categories that trigger technology services reviews of purchase card reconciliations and expense reimbursement requests in Workday, and creating a required checkbox for purchase card reconciliations or employee reimbursement requests that require city employees to attest that no technology was purchased. The agency has also agreed implementation by December 31st, 2023. I'll open the floor now to questions and comments from the agency and audit committee for both recommendations. Chris, do you have any additional comments? I'm glad to see you agree, of course. But. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I guess to start, we agree with both your recommendations. Um, I think the 
key point on the first finding is just good awareness. We, we do need a lot more documentation and updated city documents in order to make the agencies more awareness, more aware of what technology actually is. I think a lot of them, you know, with very good intent, don't think that it could impact the city, and I think that's our role in order to educate them. Uh, I'll also say in a, in a big part of, you know, what's happened over the past few years is the city, you know, abruptly worked from home because of COVID. During the time of the audit, I think a lot of agencies, including TS, just scrambling just to survive, be able to operate the city, meet citizen needs. And I think that's where a lot of the volume has come from, is just, just trying to survive and, and meet the needs. So I absolute founded, and, and all these things are very do doable. We have a strong partnership with the Department of Finance and the Controller's Office, so I'm absolutely positive we can do these in the time frame allotted. Did you have anything else you wanted to add? Yeah, no, and I appreciated the call out on the compensating controls that we have put in place, and also I think the reflection that, unfortunately, it's too late at some points where we're able to stop these things, but we need to get better at the pre-approval, and a lot of that, I think, is the communication and collaboration with the partner agencies that we're really looking forward to. Jack? Um, Chris, let me ask you this question. You know, I, I'm just giving you my own observations. Yes, sir. Is that <clears throat> I found, it's my opinion, it's, and this is a personal opinion, that uh, centralized services like yours um, somehow have a great deal of trouble hurting the cats in terms of what they're doing. And my question to you is to step back, I'm stepping back a little, and maybe I'm being foolish about this, but you know, in today's day and age, you know, where it's hard to get employees, et cetera, you get into the whole behavioral issue of if somebody can use a purchase card to buy certain kinds of things, people are hesitant not to reimburse people after they spent the money, even though they shouldn't have done it. And what I'm wondering is, do we need to take a whole new look at what's approved so that we get rid of the purchase cards for anything but maybe uh, you know supplies and maybe reorganize things a little bit because you guys are in a position of herding cats. You got all these agencies out there and you have people who run them who could care less about this kind of stuff. I'm, it, Cause that's not what they do every day. And I'm, that's the only question I have is, I think the time frame is good, but do you feel you, you need something stronger than than what we've been working with here? I, I'm just... Chris? I, I would agree that purchasing technology on P cards is, is not a good idea. Uh, I, I do think for the larger you know, city purchases with P cards, there are at times when it is necessary. So I, I, I don't believe personally that you know, we would wanna get rid of the program altogether and, and would defer you know, to the experts as far as you know, what those P cards are used for and how it uh, enables an agency to move quickly in order to buy supplies and other things like that. Um, I think you know time is probably our biggest challenge when we're talking about small technology purchases. An agency could have to wait you know weeks or months sometimes for us to review that technology. 
and you know, meeting that business need or meeting the citizen need is really that challenge that we're trying to, to work against. Uh, I think with good awareness, mainly around <coughs> the risk that an agency is taking and, and putting our data at risk and putting our you know, city, we have, you know, it's in the news all the time about cyber attacks and Ashley can speak more about this, how often it happens, it's almost weekly. Uh, if they can be made aware of what the proper procedures are and what risk they're taking, I think that we can get this under the control uh, that I think we're looking for. So I'll stop there for Ashley's comments. I just wanted to add to um, one of the options that was recommended here too, for example, was developing a catalog. So I think also giving additional options for our employees to purchase technology easier, more quickly, uh, can also help alleviate that use for the, the procurement card. Um, and also looking forward, and I see Bill in the audience, but looking forward to working more with the controller's office to also see if there are additional things we could do around the merchant category codes to lock down some of the procurement card spending so that only authorized users could have those merchant category codes available on the P card. So I think there are other opportunities that we can partner with the controller's office around as well. Florian, did you have a That's question? what I was going to suggest. Okay. Emerging category uh, control. Yeah, I, I want to add. I mean, I I think the Department of Tech Services and my office have worked very well together to, you know, make sure that the systems in the city are more and more secure all the time. And I think we've come a long way. But we can have Fort Knox-like security if you leave the door unlocked. Um, <laughs> it doesn't do any good, does it? I agree. It does not take a lot for us to have a breach either in data or in some other cyber attack. Um, I think that's why in, in some cases even these very small charges on P cards could be just as dangerous as a larger system that we've left unsecure. I agree with you. And I think the, at least the technology things that I have read and heard, the people that we have to watch out for the most are internal people, the employees. And this is a good example of that. So. Yeah, and I think one of the things Ashley's team is, and she can speak more of this, has done a really good job of pushing cybersecurity training, and we have that now quarterly as a, a standard part of what we do. And I think that's also helping with, you know, not only the activity of, you know, using technology, but also I think we could incorporate purchasing technology and how it puts the city at risk. I do have one other question. Sure, go ahead. Is it, is it? troubling at all that a, a significant number of the purchases um, were for news, games, and other subscriptions? Uh, it's very concerning. Um, my assumption is there is a, an approval process for every agency when you spend on a P card that their management team needs to approve. Uh, so I think, you know, larger than a technology issue, I think there's a, an appropriate use of city funds, and, and I would agree with you. Sure, there is. Is there an IP card? Don't you? Just, I mean, it's after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. After. After oh, the yeah. Event. Okay. Okay. But I do think some of the, the news and the news and subscriptions is business-related content in the sense of a subscription to the Harvard Business Journal or something that is directly related to the actual work at hand is the hope. Yeah. But and cloud services is another. Wouldn't that be centralized or? shouldn't it be, as opposed to individually purchased? 
as we do the moon landing. That's our hope as well, and we're trying to get better at doing what we call vendor risk assessments, for example, when there is a new vendor out there. So for example, a subscription for a Zoom license you can order an individual one. We would prefer to look at an enterprise license, for example, that has more security around it. And so that's where we're hoping, again, with the improvements that we make from these recommendations, that we can get that education out there to encourage our employees to come to us before they'd like to make an purchase so we can coach them on this and get to that point of looking at enterprise licenses versus these individual subscriptions. Yeah. Yeah, see, I, I guess, this gets back to what the auditor just said. You have people out there that you can try to educate them all you like. They're not going to listen to you. And I guess the question becomes, is there some way you can rearrange the deck? to keep this kind of stuff from happening. I mean, it's, um, all the cybersecurity issues just keep getting worse and worse, and you know, you keep getting better at it, but the crooks keep moving along as well. And I guess at some point, um, you know, and maybe you can get together with the controller's office. I think they may be having some difficulties with some of these agencies, you know, giving them the information they need a lot of times also on the financial side to, to literally uh, put a stop to some of this stuff. You and know, that's where I feel the, the merchant be, category. No, I, completely I agree. Just your frustration has got to be. Um, <laughs> you know, extremely high. I do feel that the merchant category code is one way that we could look at locking this down so that if somebody went to buy something that was in one of these off-limits categories, the purchase would be denied right then and there. But who decides what's off-limits? That's partnering with the controller's office. Okay, so it's just the two, two departments to do that. In, in terms of making that decision? Around technology purchases. Bill, you're shaking your head. So there'd be three of you. Three. So. Well, to complicate the solution to the problem is that some of these agencies are different branches of government uh, that will fiercely guard their independence. Yeah, I'd also like to highlight the, the service catalog that we're developing, uh, being proactive in delivering solutions that agencies need. We have an extremely high demand with you know, over 40 agencies, as, as you've highlighted in your report. Uh, it's very difficult for everyone to be satisfied with the exact same thing. Although we do a lot of diligence in, in developing these products, they're not perfect for every agency. And I think that over time, as we continue to develop these platforms, the need for them to go out and buy their own solution will diminish over time as well. And also provide them with a financial incentive. There's no need for them to spend their own agency funds on something that we already have and we're already paying for. Does that part make sense? That might be the key. <laughs> <laughs> if I can get something for free. Okay. 
Okay, should we continue? Thank you, Auditor. Yeah. Our second finding on page 10 of the report is that technology services lacks detailed citywide guidance for technology purchases. Our first sub-finding is there is no detailed def definition of what constitutes a technology purchase, no documented definition of what city entities are considered to be on the network, and no documented steps for approving technology purchases. Technology services officials told us executive order number 18, updated in January of 2021, is what they use to define what a technology purchase is, as well as what constitutes an agency operating the city's network. In that order, technology is defined as, a, as any software, hardware, or cloud service that connects to the network. However, it does not address specific technologies like audio equipment, computer peripherals, and subscription services. Technology services has no documented definition of which city agencies are considered operating on the city's <coughs> network. Executive Order 80, number 18 says technology services has the authority to administer and implement all technology for agencies that operate on the city's network. It defines this technology as being <coughs> hardware and software components and systems that support the digital services for users, including connectivity, email, storage, cybersecurity, and all other digital technology. Technology services says every agency is on the network, but some agencies believe they are not subject to the executive order. For example, the Denver City Council does not believe it is subject, subjected to executive orders from the mayor's office because it is a legislative branch of city government, even though the council is operating on the network and relies on technology services to support them. Another example is the Denver International Airport, which is considered separate because although it is owned by the city, it is a government enterprise, operating much like a business. It has its own information technology team and runs on its own network. It is critical for technology services to be clear on who is on and off the network to ensure that the city and its technology assets are protected from cybersecurity threats. Technology services is missing requirements in its policy and procedures for agency staff to review and approve a technology purchase. For example, the new software and hardware asset management policies and procedures provide overall guidance for acquiring technology equipment or services, but the steps and requirements uh, either requesting reimbursement or using a purchase card are not detailed and neither policy reflects executive order number 18's requirements to review and approve a technology purchase. Although executive order number 18 precludes agencies from using a purchase card to purchase technology, we found instances where a purchase was made on a card with and without technology services approval. The policy or procedure should address documenting these exceptions to the order. Leading practices say an organization's technology team is responsible for defining and communicating roles and responsibilities for information technology, including authority levels, responsibilities, and accountability. It is therefore important for technology services as the city's authority on information technology to support agencies with clear definitions and procedures to comply with the order. If the policies do not reflect what is expected, then leaders cannot hold their organization to the standards they have set and without more detail, agency employees are likely unaware of the requirements for technology purchases and approvals. 
Ultimately, city agencies are violating executive order number 18. Because of technology services' lack of clear definitions and policies, the city faces several risks with unauthorized technology purchases. Leaders and staff within city agencies are risking the security, confidentiality, and integrity of the city's network and data through these unauthorized purchases. Also, the city could be missing out on cost-saving opportunities through bulk discount pricing. Therefore, we've offered the following three recommendations as a group. Beginning with recommendation 2.1 on page 13, clarify policies and procedures for technology purchases. Once workflows are determined, as outlined in recommendation 1.2, the city's technology services agency should refine its relevant policies and procedures, develop supplemental procedures to address city employees' roles and responsibilities for technology purchases, both for agencies on the network and technology <coughs> services personnel, finalize and approve these policies and procedures. Recommendation 2.2 on uh, is to update documentation for technology purchases. The city technologies, city's technology agent services agency should change its policies and procedures to define technology purchases and on the network to ensure compliance with the executive order. This change should include guidance on when purchase cards and expense reimbursements can be used for technology purchases <coughs> and it should better define when technology purchases require pre-approval from technology services. Recommendation 2.3 is to update the guidance for when purchase cards can be used for technology purchases. Following recommendation 1.1, the city's technology services agency should work with the controller's office to update credit card usage policies and procedures to reflect when purchase cards can be used for technology purchases. The agency agreed with all three recommendations with an implementation date of December 31st, 2023. Mm. And at this time, we'd like to ask if the agency or committee have any further comments or questions. Chris, any? I, I guess starting with, we agree with all three of your recommendations. Um, I think Ashley said this earlier, continual improvement is, is what we do in technology services. I, I think starting with XO18, we probably could have been you know, more precise in our wording about the network and what technology is. Uh, we do have some internal policies and, and definitely have some holes in it as, as you've outlined. And I think the biggest part is procedurally uh, developing those workflows and communicating to the agencies and how those should be used in, in partnership with both the controller's office and, and uh, general services. Um, I don't know, did you have anything else on that one? Yeah, I think one of the highlights that I appreciated um, in the findings was around, even though technology experts may understand some of the language that we're using, not all city employees do. And so really putting a focus on trying to get some feedback and collaboration as we're also developing the updated policies and procedures to make sure that everybody does understand and we are all on the same page. Okay, thank you. Uh, one more, right? Yep, one more sub-finding. <laughs> Continuing on page 14 of the report, uh, the second sub-finding is technology services has limited communication and training of agencies on the requirements for the purchases. Since the update of executive order number 18, technology services has not provided adequate and detailed communication or training to city agencies on the executive order's new requirements. Specifically, there was no training on when to use a purchase card, 
and when to apply for reimbursement for technology purchases. Technology services officials said that the Department of General Services, as the official authority for citywide purchases, should be the agency responsible for providing initial and periodic training about requirements for technology purchases, like it does for all other purchases of goods and services. However, technology services did not communicate the specific guidance for, from the executive order to general services purchasing divisions so that it can be added to the training given to new employees and employees new to a purchasing role. We found no evidence the two agencies are working together to shore up communications and training on technology purchase requirements and exceptions as defined in the order. Federal guidance says a successful training program would consist of details from de defined policy and procedure. It would also communicate roles and responsibilities for users and established expectations for monitoring and review. Without proper communication and training, city employees may intentionally or unintentionally bypass purchase requirements resulting in violations of the order. These violations could result in other consequences, such as introducing security risks, wasting resources, and subjecting the city to possible lawsuits and reputational damage for mishandling protected data. Therefore, we offered the following recommendation. Recommendation 2.4 on page 14 develop and conduct training on technology purchases. Once a recommended process, policy, and procedural changes have been implemented as described in recommendations 1.2 and 2.2, the city's technology services agency should work with the Department of General Services to develop a required training and periodic refresher, specifically for those responsible for technology purchases citywide. This should include definitions for technology categories how to purchase technology and purchase cards, and what receipts are required for out-of-pocket reimbursements. Once training has been developed, technology services should develop a communications plan to disseminate the executive order and technology services policies and procedures for technology purchases annually to the applicable staff who make purchases. This training should also discuss security, data protection and privacy, and financial resource risks when agencies bypass technology services pre-approval of technology. The agency agreed with the recommendation with an implementation date of December 31st. And this concludes our presentation of the citywide <coughs> IT purchases audit report. And we open up for uh, final questions and comments. Chris, I, I mean, you agree with the last recommendation. Anything to add? I think we've discussed this one. But Absolutely, we agree. And, and as I said earlier, we've, we've done a, a lot of improvements to our cybersecurity awareness training, and, and we have a strong partnership with the Office of Human Resources and their learning and development team. So I think it's you know appropriate and, and very doable over this time frame to implement the training that's needed. So do you have anything to add? Completely okay. agree. All right. Thank you. So if I saw in the future a cybersecurity training that included P cards, I won't be surprised. Is that? <laughs> it, it'd be another 15 minutes worth, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, any further questions, comments from the committee? Well, thank you, and I do appreciate our partnership. I think we've worked well together over the years and look forward to continuing that. Uh, I think it makes our system stronger and better. So thank you very much. Absolutely, thank you for having us, thank you. Thank you. Okay, general business, our next meeting will be on Thursday, June 22nd. 
<clears throat> here in the Par Widener room. Uh, and following that will be an executive session with our external auditors across the street in the Webb building. And right now I'd like to adjourn the meeting to executive session with our external auditors. Thank you very much. happen so quick that'll change your life forever I will say it over and over and over again don't text and drive that it can't wait I would tell America to please don't text and drive how many other people are going to have to be killed how many other people are going to be left like my sister Debbie it's just nuts. It's crazy. You know. I don't know why people don't want to talk to each other anyway. <laughs> From the west, where snow on the mountain summits is visible the whole year round, the eye may sweep away to the north over a fertile and beautiful agricultural region along the foothills. To the northwest, where the South Platte winds its way, appearing like a ribbon of silver in its fringing of greenery. Far to the east, where the billowy plains roll to hazy distances until the sky bends down to meet them. To the south, where the divide between the Platte and the Arkansas rivers stretches from the mountains far out on the plains. The city itself is spread out at the feet of the beholder, who now appreciates its beauty, its extent, and the charm of its location as he never did, never could before. Jerome C. Smiley, from the Capitol Dome, 
1895. Crowning the summit of Brown's Bluff in the heart of Denver, the Colorado Capitol building is among the great architectural treasures of the American West. The preeminent achievement of the most accomplished Capitol architect in U.S. history. Its gilded dome, a glowing icon, stands in stately Congress with the majestic peaks of the Rocky Mountains. Marble floors, grand hallways, a soaring rotunda. These things are part of the lexicon of Capitol buildings everywhere. But the native Yule Creek marble used in the Colorado Capitol is so fine that it was selected also for the Lincoln Memorial and Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. The stunning rose onyx that lines the walls is so rare that its single known deposit was used only in this building. The bronze closing era statue on the East Lawn has won critical praise and renown since its debut at the Chicago World's Fair in 1893. Everything in the Capitol building, whether it's the art, the architecture, any, any material in the building is going to reflect the state of Colorado as a whole. It all says something about what we as Coloradoans choose to remember, choose to honor from our state's past, our shared experience. It is a finely crafted building, whether it's the wood or the marble or the stone or the brass. And it's impressive how accurate and how capable these people were uh, 110 years ago. This is as fine an example of the neoclassical Corinthian design as there exists in our country. But for all the glory of its art and architecture, the capital's greatest claim for reverence may be its least visible, least tangible feature. That is, history itself. For it is here, beneath the Capitol Dome, that the perennial questions of Colorado politics first took shape. The rights of labor and property, the fairness and transparency of the political process, the proper balance between spending and taxation, the size and role of government. And it is here that the people of Colorado continue to debate these issues. The Colorado Capitol embodies for all time the principles and traditions of American democracy. But it remains, as the society it represents, a work in progress. In the twisting vortex of history, it is the place at the middle, where ideals must do battle with expediency, where public service comes up against personal gain, where unity is fashioned from diversity. The state capitol sits above the rest of the city of Denver at a spot that is so central to our history and to our interest, where the Platte River comes out of the mountains on the crux between the mountains and plains. This is the spiritual as well as the physical center of this state. You have to give kids the opportunity to see the vastness of their state. Not only the beauty of the architecture, but the meaning that is behind that architecture. It's all about the people who've made a difference in Colorado and the natural resources that have made Colorado a great state. And that one thread that weaves throughout the history of the state is the Capitol building. These public buildings are sort of built as cathedrals are, to add some uh, grandeur and significance and awe to the whole experience. And it sure worked on me. <laughs> I walked into that chamber and you look around and you think about what's gone on there over the hundred years and you get a sense of your own place in a stream of history.
With us are the Continental Eagles and the Continental Cause, immortalized by the purity of Washington, illuminated by the wisdom of Jefferson, vindicated and restored by the illustrious Jackson. Governor William Gilpin, Colorado Territory, 1861. America's founding fathers were driven by two big ideas. First, that the United States was the successor to all the great and glorious traditions of Europe. And second, that it was destined to surpass Europe in every way. They believed America's unique democratic institutions would create a spirit of enterprise unprecedented in history. As Thomas Jefferson put it, no constitution was ever before as well calculated as ours for extending extensive empire and self-government. By the latter half of the 19th century, as population growth and economic expansion pushed the productive territory of the young nation to the Mississippi River and beyond, these visions of American empire became increasingly more grandiose. It was at this auspicious moment that American statehouse architecture entered its golden age. In the 20 years from 1866 to 1886, no fewer than 11 state houses were begun, from Connecticut's elaborate Victorian Gothic edifice to elegant classical structures in Michigan, Texas, and the new centennial state of Colorado. At the furthest frontiers of the new nation, sheer backwardness and isolation might have been expected to make settlers a bit circumspect about this grand vision of empire, but this was far from being the case. The pioneers who settled Colorado in the early 1860s not only believed in American empire, they believed they would one day be at the center of it all. Few believed this more fervently than William Gilpin, soldier, explorer, author, and first territorial governor of Colorado. The existence of the precious and base metals in absolutely inexhaustible abundance and variety, the universal fertility of the soil upon the flanks of the great mountains as upon the plains, the uniform splendor and salubrity of the climate, the facility of transit and penetration by roads over all varieties of surface. These facts promise unrivaled rapidity of progress, prosperity, and power. In fact, early Coloradoans were so convinced of the wealth and power destined to flow into their capital that they spent more than 10 years battling over just where it should be located. Colorado's territorial government had a really hard time finding a home. Uh, not only did it bounce around from place to place within Denver, but it bounced around to Colorado City for a brief period, to Golden as well, and then back to Denver. Denver, for better or for worse, was where the action was. It was where our economy was developing. Besides its size and central location, Denver had one more advantage. In 1867, local developer Henry Cordes Brown offered a 10-acre plot on the edge of town for construction of a state capitol building. Because the site sat at a slight elevation relative to Denver's downtown, it became known as Brown's Bluff. However, Brown was no altruist, a fact that would be made clear when he sued the state in 1879 and demanded they return the still undeveloped land. Brown understood that by owning much of the land around a future capital building, he stood to make a fortune. The production of silver in Leadville was minting millionaires at a dizzying rate, and Denver's elite liked the idea of building their mansions in the area called Capitol Hill. Raising the necessary funds for a capital building proved difficult, however, and the project was soon plagued by seemingly endless delays. 
1874, the territorial legislature appointed a new commission to take such action as would enable the building to be completed by January 1st, 1876. The deadline came and went with little progress. In 1876, Colorado finally won its long battle to attain statehood. But to the intense frustration of Henry Brown, the decade would come to a close with no activity on Brown's Bluff beyond an annual fireworks show to celebrate Independence Day. Then, in an 1881 referendum, Denver finally won the capital designation once and for all. Denver won because it was the largest town, but uh, Colorado voters being Colorado voters, Durango people voted for Durango, Silverton people voted for Silverton, some people threw their votes away and voted for Pikes Peak, and of course Leadville was convinced it was going to be the capital. When the site was finalized, the legislature wasted little time planning construction of the capital. In 1883, they created a board of capital managers and granted them sweeping authority to preside over construction. Then, in the summer of 1885, after a competition that drew architectural submissions from across the nation, the board of capital managers announced that they had selected none other than the most renowned statehouse architect of the day, Elijah E. Myers. At the time, many assumed Myers gained the advantage from his role as architect for Denver's most significant government building to date the Arapahoe County Courthouse. But by the 1880s, Myers' reputation had gone far beyond courthouses. Myers had already designed the Michigan Capitol. He designed the Texas State Capitol in the meantime. He designed a territorial capital for Idaho. And there's no doubt Myers was the architect to have in the Gilded Age. He's the Frank Lloyd Wright. He's the Frank Gehry of his time. By 1886, Meyer's architectural plan for the capital was approved, and $1 million was appropriated to begin construction. The building would be completed, said the supremely confident capital managers, no later than New Year's Day, 1890, a prediction that would prove to be wildly optimistic. In the end, 15 years would pass between the sound of the first spade striking the ground in that summer of 1886 and the final interior finishes in 1901. The first delays came almost immediately. Laborers digging the foundations had to go 20 feet before reaching bedrock, eight feet more than expected. Other delays followed. In 1890, when they expected to celebrate the building's completion, the capital managers instead joined tens of thousands of Coloradoans to celebrate the laying of the cornerstone. By then, the estimated cost for the project had grown from an original limit of $1 million to more than $2 million. Both the original contractor and Myers himself had been summarily fired due to cost overruns. The journey before them, obviously, would be a long one. But if the capital's construction process was chaotic, the task of building Colorado's government was more turbulent by far. a crowd of tens of thousands all perched under their umbrellas because the sun was so baking hot. There was a very impressive Masonic ceremony. There was a choir with a thousand voices, speeches from important judges in early Colorado history from the governor at the time, Joe Cooper. And after the cornerstone was laid, there was a huge barbecue down in Lincoln Park on the west side of the Capitol building. 
with hundreds of animals that had been butchered, barrels of pickles and immense quantities of lemonade and fireworks at the end of the day. I don't think there's ever been as exciting a day in the Capitol's history as when the cornerstone was laid. And I cannot imagine a more exciting day to be at the Capitol. Coloradoans had good reason for optimism on that hot summer day in 1890. Despite many delays and difficulties, the project to construct one of the grandest capitals in the West was now well and truly underway. By the end of 1889, the building's thick masonry walls stood almost 50 feet high on the north side and nearly 35 feet on the south side. In keeping with the Board of Governors' pledge to use only Colorado granite, Quarrymen at the Aberdeen Quarry near Gunnison, Colorado, filled 40 train cars each week. Once the material reached the construction site, a veritable army of 250 laborers, 160 stonecutters, 40 stone setters, and 50 bricklayers set about sorting and shaping it into walls, pillars, and floors. Meyer's architectural plans called for an amazing 20,000 granite pieces of varying shapes and sizes to be fitted to the building before it was done. It was the kind of undertaking that stirs the soul. Geographically, Colorado is among the most exalted states in the Union. Upon the apex of the continent, our capital becomes a lighthouse upon a great eminence, and from there it should radiate a never-fading glow of exalted principles, of high and patriotic examples. Alma Adams. Rhetoric aside, the political reality of the day was anything but exalted. In fact, far from spreading the virtues of democracy through the land, the Colorado government was more concerned with establishing a basic respect for law and order. Mountain towns in particular doggedly maintained their reputation for brawling, drinking, and corruption, with the most violent conflicts often erupting around disputed land claims. One man who tried to mediate the differences was John Rout. Few men in the state's early history commanded more respect than Rout, elected the first Colorado governor in 1876, and then re-elected 15 years later, just months after the laying of the Capitol cornerstone. Shortly after his re-election, Rout found himself mediating conflicting silver claims in Creed, Colorado, when the mood turned ugly. It seemed many of the miners thought hanging a governor might be an effective way to get their point across. The only thing that saved him was the fact that he had spent years working a mountain claim himself and was not afraid to stand up to threats. What? You will lynch the old man, will you? Well, you are the biggest lot of damn fools in the United States. Guess you fellows could hang me, all right, but you would be committing murder and you would not get your lots after all. What do you really want, to kill me? Or after process of law, get your titles. Governor John Rout. These disorderly scenes were by no means limited to the higher elevations. In the spring of 1894, a volatile former lawman by the name of Davis Waite became the first to occupy the capital's newly completed governor's office. Governor Waite had earned the nickname Bloody Bridles the year before when he gave a fiery speech that seemed to condone violent rebellion against the capitalist elite. It is better, infinitely better, that blood should flow to the horse's bridles rather than our national liberties should be destroyed. 
Shortly after taking office, Waite became embroiled in an infamous incident at Denver City Hall. In the 1890s, the governor of Colorado had control of Denver's police and fire commissioners, and Waite launched a campaign to reform uh, what he saw as rampant corruption in the Denver city government by firing the police and fire commissioners. But when those commissioners refused to vacate their offices, Waite very quickly turned to the National Guard. In return, the Denver police and fire departments called on their allies from Denver's criminal underworld. And there was actually a siege at Denver City Hall on Larimer Street, pitting the National Guard against a combined force of policemen and outlaws. Waite came within minutes of ordering the troops to open fire with cannon and Gatlin guns, but cooler heads prevailed on both sides. Historian Jerome Smiley would later remember the so-called City Hall War as the most disgraceful affair in the history of the government of our city. But for all his emotional indiscretion, Davis Waite's reformist zeal was a direct outgrowth of the times. Colorado's silver-based economy had crashed in 1893, and working people faced with growing uncertainty were angry. As a member of the Populist Party, Waite seemed to stand for the rights of the common man in the face of a capitalist oligarchy that spared little thought for the living conditions of the working poor. In few states were the privileges of the capitalists more unfettered than in Colorado. Miners endured appalling working conditions resulting in high incidents of sickness and death. But the state's Republican-dominated legislature had long made no secret of their sympathy with mine owners. When 6,000 miners walked off the job in Leadville in 1880, Governor Frederick Pitkin wasted little time in sending the National Guard in to quell the unrest and force the miners back to work. Meanwhile, with Pitkin's tacit approval, the mine owners employed Pinkerton detectives to drive strike leaders out of town. It was a pattern that would often be repeated, and it was a recipe for ongoing unrest and instability. Our capital, with its great lofty dome, massive walls, columns, and portals, is an exceptionally handsome, dignified, and well-proportioned edifice. Few structures in this country are more pleasing in their aspects than it, as it stands there on a commanding site in a splendid park. Jerome Smiley. By the beginning of 1901, all structural work on the Capitol was complete and the building was fully occupied. The moment had come for Coloradoans to sit back and take stock of their capital. By and large, they were very pleased with what they saw. In its neoclassical grandeur, the new Colorado State House unmistakably embodied the young nation's aspirations to enlightened government and economic might. The central feature, the dome, was cherished for its association with both the Roman Empire and the great Renaissance cathedrals of Europe. The temple front entrances harkened back to the Greek Empire and Athens, the cradle of democracy itself. From its earliest days, the Capitol building was a marvel of mountain sunlight translated into pattern and color. The polished oak desks of the legislative chambers glowed beneath giant skylights. In the hallways, sunlight pouring through the highest windows cascaded from one polished brass balustrade to the next before striking the vast marble floor and soaring aloft again with undiminished power. In the towering rotunda, this same effect was magnified even more. Here, the marble seemed to glow as if lit from within by some rich and unwavering fire. 
Intricately layered geometric panels and pilasters carried the light ever upward and outward, an eloquent reminder to legislators that any action taken here would have far-reaching effects. And indeed, the first Colorado legislature to meet in the building in January 1895 in some ways represented a high-water mark for democracy in Colorado and the nation at large. Not only was this the second state election in the U.S. with universal suffrage, women having won the right to vote in Colorado in 1893, but it was the first time in American history that women had been elected to serve in a state legislature. In addition to three women, the chamber that year included the second African-American representative in Colorado history. From the day the Capitol opened for business in 1894, it became not just the House of Government, but also a vast public museum commemorating the history of Colorado and the American West. Free admission to its growing range of artifacts and artwork soon attracted more than 60,000 visitors a year. Crowded into the Capitol's lower level were offices of the State Geologist, along with the State Historical and Natural History Society, and the Horticultural Society. Exhibits included the first printing press from the Rocky Mountain News, cannons confiscated from the Confederate Army at the 1862 Battle of Glorietta Pass, displays of Colorado trees and flowers, an impressive array of stuffed birds, bison, and bears, and even, although not for public viewing, the decapitated heads of two notorious bandits, Felipe and Jose Espinosa. For those with more refined tastes, the capital boasted an incredible collection of Anasazi artifacts, recovered from recently excavated cliff dwellings in southwestern Colorado. Later moved to the Colorado State Museum and today's History Colorado Center, these astonishing exhibits of pottery, tools, skulls, and mummies rank among the world's most important collections of pre-Columbian artifacts. But far and away, the most popular attraction was the Capitol Dome itself. From the 1890s onward, visitors could climb a narrow stairway, walk out in the open air among the dome's supporting pillars, and take in one of the most dramatic views in the American West. The original copper covering on the dome struck many as an inelegant finish to a grand capital, particularly an estate forged from silver and gold. After rejecting a silver-clad dome as an unpleasant reminder of economic problems still troubling Colorado, the capital managers chose to gild the dome in 1908 with 200 ounces of gold donated by the Colorado Mining Association. In the summer of 1900, the Board of Capital Managers completed the controversial task of naming 16 Colorado leaders to be honored with stained glass windows inside the soaring Capitol Rotunda. The only person the entire committee agreed upon was Chief Uray for his outstanding contributions to keeping peace between his people and the settlers and his trips to Washington, D.C. on behalf of his people. Casimiro Barella helped write the Constitution of Colorado, and he served for 40 years. There was a mountain man chosen named James Baker, who was one of the pioneer fur trappers in early Colorado. It's really unfair that Frances Weisbart Jacobs is the only woman given our early acceptance of Colorado women's suffrage. But if there's only one, she is a terrific representative. Throughout Colorado, there were many who hoped the Capitol building's beauty would serve to elevate the spirit of Colorado government to a higher plane, preserving it from the class divisions and corruption then gripping much of the nation. 
President Theodore Roosevelt added to these hopes when he gave a speech from the Capitol steps in 1903. Nearly 40,000 Coloradoans turned out to hear their president blast the growing power of corporations and promise justice for the middle class. We must treat each man on his worth and merits as a man. We must see that each is given a square deal because he is entitled to know more and should receive no less. But the optimism of Roosevelt and the progressives would prove to be misplaced. As tensions between capital and labor grew ever more acrimonious, neither side hesitated to resort to the lowest forms of political corruption to win or hold on to power. For three weeks, I was absent from this city a thousand miles, and nothing in all my experience so brought the blush of shame to my cheeks as the constant inquiry in every city I visited, what about the terrible election frauds in Denver? A good lady of California showed me clippings from the papers of Washington City showing an investigation by the National Congress that showed up this election blackness in all its horror. Judge Ben Lindsay. By 1904, tensions between the business-backed government and the increasingly organized wage laborers in the mines and smelting factories had reached an all-time high. In 1903, after blasting the Western Federation of Miners Union as a collection of socialists and anarchists under the evil influence of a criminal leadership, Republican Governor Frederick Peabody declared martial law and sent the National Guard to Cripple Creek Telluride and other hotspots. Ostensibly charged with keeping the peace, these troopers were in fact deployed to disrupt the unions and break the morale of strikers by any means necessary. But this time, the miners and their democratic allies were determined to fight back. Adopting the slogan, Anybody but Peabody, the miners and the Democratic Party turned their sights on the election of 1904 as their best hope to turn the tide. In a desperate gambit to mitigate the fraud and coercion on the Republican side, Denver's Democratic machine took to rounding up gamblers, prostitutes, ex-convicts, and whoever else could be found to cast multiple ballots in precincts throughout the city. The result was an improbable victory for perennial Democratic candidate Alva Adams. But no sooner were the votes tallied than Republicans began to allege massive voter fraud in Denver. The Democrats respond, well, there was also illegal Republican voting, which was true in other areas. It was a hopelessly corrupt election on all sides. But at any rate, the Supreme Court throws Adams out and reinstalls Peabody. But the Democrats are so outraged and there's such an uproar there that they come to a compromise and Peabody resigns. And his lieutenant governor, Jesse McDonald, takes the governorship. So you had three governors, Alva Adams, James M. Peabody, and Jesse McDonald. And within 24 hours running the state in a sad day in 1905. Colorado had arrived on the national scene not as the shining example of prosperity and enlightenment envisioned by every governor from Gilpin down to Peabody himself, but as the latest example of American political corruption run amok. If ever in the history of Colorado there was a time for a reformer to take the stage, it was now. Luckily, just such a man waited in the wings. He was known as Honest John Shafroth. During four terms representing Colorado in the United States Congress, 
John Shafroff not only fought hard to fund good roads and irrigation projects for Colorado, he also took an outspoken and principled stance on behalf of national women's suffrage and election campaign reform, controversial issues that most congressmen of the period avoided. Then, in 1902, he did something truly unprecedented. Informed he had been re-elected by fraudulent means, he resigned his seat immediately. When Shafroff announced his intention to run for governor in 1908, civic-minded Coloradoans quickly recognized his candidacy as their best hope for meaningful reform. Shafroth won the election. But when he presented his reform package to a legislature comprised of old guard Republicans and machine Democrats, he was met with firm resistance. Then in the 1911 election campaign, Denver mayor and Democratic boss Robert Speer tried to have the popular governor removed from the party ticket. Shafroth took his reform message directly to the people traveling to towns across the state. The ploy worked, and Shafroth's re-election that fall sent a strong message to the recalcitrant legislators. One by one, Shafroth's reforms were brought to a vote and passed. By the time Shafroth left office in 1913, the list of reforms enacted under his leadership encompassed virtually the entire progressive platform. Shafroth, in his two periods of governorship, pushed through such things as uh, initiative, which was the right of citizens to initiate laws, referendum, the right of citizens to vote on laws passed by their legislature, which they weren't too happy with, and recall, if they got enough people to sign a petition, they could recall their legislature. He was also involved in bills to stop child labor. He was involved in women's issues, conservation. In those four years as governor, he did more probably than any other one single governor that had a long-range impact on the state and on the people of Colorado. On a cold February day in 1922, honest John Shafroth lay in state at the base of the Capitol's grand stairway. The working men and women filing past his coffin couldn't help but be aware that this Capitol building was literally changing beneath their feet into a different kind of space. A space where balanced representative government was not simply a dream, but something that might actually be made reality. As if to drive the point home, when mourners strolled out onto the steps of the west entrance, the view before them was completely transformed from that of a generation before. Mayor Speer may have opposed Shafroth's reforms, but he was not without his own grand vision for bringing Denver into the modern age. Inspired by the City Beautiful movement gripping the nation, he began in 1904 to transform Denver to a Paris on the Platte. By 1922, the view from the Capitol steps encompassed a magnificent Civic Center park. Telephone and electric lines were buried, billboards banned. Newly planted trees and decorative street lights lined the streets. Fountains and monuments lent the park a sense of drama and purpose. None more so than the elegant Greek amphitheater, Voorhees Memorial, and Carnegie Library. Denver's Paris on the Platte would have to wait, however, for soon after Shafroth's death, a faltering Colorado economy threatened to undermine a generation of progress and return Denver to the rough-and-tumble conditions of its earliest days. The Great Depression came early to Colorado. By the mid-1920s, mining output was on the decline, 
and a series of dry summers resulted in poor harvests and a dwindling rural population. Against the backdrop of growing economic hardship, the Ku Klux Klan won thousands of adherents in Colorado and came to dominate the state legislature almost overnight. To many Coloradoans, Klan-supported Governor Clarence Morley seemed to advocate sensible measures, improve schools, higher prices for agricultural goods, and reduce government spending. In fact, Morley's tenure as governor proved singularly divisive, and the scandal-ridden Colorado Klan suffered a decline as precipitous as its rise. Still, far from being an anomaly, the Colorado Klan was like other movements in the state's history that discriminated against people based on ethnic and religious differences. Although Klan influence died out by 1928, Colorado's ethnic intolerance would make headlines again eight years later with Governor Edwin Johnson. In 1936, he closed Colorado's border with New Mexico in order to keep any potential immigrants or indigents without a job from coming in and competing for jobs. New Mexico's governor, Clyde Tingley, wrote a scathing letter to Governor Johnson saying, you know, many of the people who you're excluding, their grandparents and great-grandparents were born here before you and your ancestors came here. So how can you keep them out? My family first came north to this part of the world in 1600. That's 400 years, you know, that we've been here in this state. And so to have anyone suggest that we are not entitled or that we shouldn't be here is ludicrous. The important thing to remember about Ed Johnson was how very popular he was with Colorado voters. He stood up for many conservative Coloradans as the champion of local control against the big government of Roosevelt's New Deal. Though a Democrat, Johnson was ideologically opposed to increasing the size of government at a time when tax revenues seemed in permanent decline. But for President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, participation in New Deal programs was not optional. He gave Johnson a simple choice. Contribute state funds to his programs or see the flow of federal money to Colorado cut off. Johnson capitulated, diverting state highway funds to match federal relief dollars for Colorado. When Roosevelt visited the Colorado Capitol in October of 1936, he came as a conquering hero, drawing one of the largest crowds ever assembled there. The true conservative seeks to protect the system of private property and free enterprise by correcting such injustices and inequalities as arise from it. As always, the Capitol building itself reflected the new spirit of the age. Alan True's eight-panel mural in the Great Rotunda, begun in 1934 with a grant from Roosevelt's Federal Emergency Relief Agency, pay tribute not to Colorado's most successful capitalists, but to the ordinary and anonymous men and women whose daily labors made progress and prosperity possible. After federal funding ran out, philanthropist Claude Betcher and the Betcher Foundation supported the completion of the work, which True installed in 1940. The Alan True murals depicting the history of water begins with American Indians and thunderstorms. It follows pioneers and gold miners, uh, irrigated farms, it follows hydroelectric power, all the way around to a scene showing the, the beauty, the opportunity on the horizon, using this resource carefully to benefit the entire state. Each panel is accompanied by a verse penned by poet Thomas Hornsby Farrell, whose father, William Farrell, was curator of the Capitol's popular historical collections a generation before. In his final panel, 
the artist imagines what lies ahead. True wanted to leave it up to future generations to figure out how they were going to deal with this issue of water. And the fact that this old pioneer with the white beard is sitting there looking on youth um, and kind of questioning them, and he's got an empty glass of water and it's upside down. This humble peon to work and community in the heart of Colorado's capital would serve as a reminder to generations to come that Colorado recognizes the contributions of all its citizens. It was a message that could not have come at a better time. For the extraordinary pressures and stresses of World War II were feeding yet another epidemic of intolerance. In 1942, the American government rounded up 110,000 Japanese American citizens from the Pacific coast and prepared to ship them to internment camps deep within the country. Far from protesting this violation of constitutional rights, American statesmen and press outlets competed to see who could demand the harshest treatment for the interned Japanese. One man stood in opposition to the rhetoric, Colorado Governor Ralph Carr. And in that, he was alone among all Western governors, many of them who issued extremely intolerant statements and threatened to hang the Japanese if they were brought into their state. Governor Carr took the high road, and he gave the Japanese hope that even they could have a life in this life in this state. Rarely in American political history has an elected official taken such a huge political risk for no other reason than to do what he believed was right. When citizens in the southeastern Colorado town of Granada threatened violence against Japanese Americans relocated there, Carr traveled to the community and directly confronted the mob. And he said to them, we have to stand up in principle for the rights of the Japanese because next time it could be you or you or you who faces this. The memory of his deeds, while not helping him win Ed Johnson's U.S. Senate seat in a 1942 campaign, did elevate Carr to a place of special distinction in Colorado's capital. The post-war years brought boom times to Colorado, reminiscent of the heady days when the Capitol building was constructed, and there seemed to be no end in sight. As modern skyscrapers changed the skyline of downtown Denver, Coloradoans gradually grew accustomed to seeing their venerable Capitol building stand out against a glittering backdrop of steel and glass. Modern-day immigrants from across the country flocked to Colorado as a place promising that rarest of combinations, abundant open space and opportunities for employment. Colorado's capital, a conventional place of customs and traditions, wasn't always quick to grasp the new realities. Then came an overwhelming series of national catastrophes. The Kennedy assassination, Vietnam, the Mideast oil embargo, Nixon. The era of popular dissent was born, and the west portal of the capital became center stage for the protests and petitions of the people. Few years saw more action than 1969. In April of that year, the Black Panthers joined forces with Chicanos to protest a lack of educational opportunities and the seeming indifference to their needs on behalf of elected officials. On Mexican Independence Day in September of 69, Chicanos returned with a force of 4,000. We knew we didn't have political power. We knew that the only way to move the agenda 
for employment, education, health. It was through political action. And that was why students came together and marched on the Capitol. To its credit, the state avoided the violent clashes between protesters and police, which seemed almost the norm in much of the nation. For this, many credit the cool-headed leadership of Governor John Love, who presided over the Colorado State House from 1963 to 1973. By the middle 1970s, the most tumultuous protests had passed, but the changes they wrought in Colorado's culture were still being felt. Elected in 1975, brash young environmentalist Governor Richard Lamb epitomized the new era with an independent style that seemed to fit the evolving cultural aesthetic. Reflecting these historic shifts, the legislature decided the time had come for another update to the Capitol building artwork, one that would make the building more truly representative of all Coloradoans. In 1976, to mark the 100th anniversary of Colorado statehood, government officials dedicated Women's Gold, a spectacular silk tapestry commemorating the contributions of 19 women to Colorado history. Also that year came the addition of stained glass windows honoring Opportunity School founder Emily Griffith, former state treasurer Virginia Neal Blue, and territorial era African-American businessman Barney Ford. In the house, we only have one stained glass window. It's Barney Ford. He was influential in having Colorado not become a state until we became a free state. The arc of history, as Dr. King said, is very long, and it bends towards justice. And that became very clear to me standing under Barney Ford's picture when I gave my first speech to the chamber as Speaker of the House. Finally, in 1977, heritage windows were installed in the old Supreme Court room, honoring minority leaders in Colorado history. The mapmaker Don Miera y Pacheco, Ute Chiefs Jack House and Buckskin Charlie, pioneering African American businesswoman Clara Brown, Chinese businessman Chin Lin Su, and Japanese entrepreneur Naochi Hokazono. The legislature was justly proud of these latest additions to a glorious artistic collection. But for those charged with maintaining the Capitol's more basic functions, the growing splendor of the building's interior seemed to make elected officials overlook the precarious condition of the 100-year-old structure. There were reports done in 1990 and 1995 to determine exactly what the structural condition of the Capitol was. And the news wasn't good. There were all sorts of fire dangers in the Capitol building. In fact, there was one report that suggested that from the moment a wastebasket fire would start, it could be as soon as eight minutes later that there would start being structural collapse in the building. With their feet literally held to the fire, the legislature finally approved a multi-year life safety project to install sprinklers and emergency exit stairways throughout the building, funded by the State Historical Fund, a program of History Colorado. But even before that project was completed, it became clear that the Capitol building had developed another potentially life-threatening problem. A study revealed that the cast iron supports holding the dome in place were severely damaged by water seepage and rust. Well, in 2006, I got a call that a piece of the dome had fallen off. It had fallen from the ceiling of the outside observation deck. The Capitol building is well over a century old now, and we're at a point now where we're faced with an absolute demand uh, uh, for maintenance and repairs of that dome that can't be put off any longer. All of the painted gray cast iron is failing and it needs to be removed. 
and then the rivets are deteriorating in various areas. So we need to investigate and replace those metal rivets with stainless steel. Clearly, the Capitol building is now showing its age. In Michigan and Texas, where Elijah Myers designed capitals were built in the same era as Colorado's, painstaking restorations undertaken in the 1980s and 90s won widespread praise. But with estimates for a full rehabilitation of the Colorado Capitol running as high as $250 million, the project is virtually impossible to fund without first passing the difficult hurdle of voter approval. One day soon, Coloradoans will have to decide. There are few symbols that are more powerful for the state of Colorado than, than our gold dome on the state capitol. The people of Colorado have to rally around this building. Its care, its condition is our responsibility. And we have to do everything we can, even in difficult times, to save this structure that represents all of us. Future governors, legislators, and citizens could surely gather in another building to face the issues of their time. But there is reason to doubt if they would remember as clearly, in a new setting, the lessons of Colorado's history. Separated from the symbols of the past, would government be guided as well by the demands of destiny? And would the immortal words of Thomas Hornsby Farrell resound outside the Great Rotunda? Beyond the sundown is tomorrow's wisdom. Today is going to be long, long ago. It gives you the sense that you're part of this great continuum, part of something that's much bigger than yourself. This is a building worth caring about and worth maintaining and, and keeping as a symbol of all that's great about the state of Colorado. If you could give me a magic wand and say you could have a new multi-million dollar new capital like they have in a number of states, you know, I'd say no. You need the sense of historical proportion that the capital gives us. The whole traditions of Colorado being a mixture of cultures and people. Winston Churchill said it best. We build our buildings, and then they build us.
Every country has some kind of mythology that works. Knights of the Round Table in England and you know, ninja warriors in, in Japan and in the US, what people think about are cowboys and the West. When I ran, there were 88 incorporated cities and towns in Wyoming. Only 34 schools that play 11-man football, 98,000 square miles. The people are genuine. They think long-term about the big picture. They have a belief in protecting the land and our people. The state's really one community with very long streets. The equality state, and even today, I think women are allowed to operate more as individuals, not as men, not as women, but as people. I think that there's been a freedom here that women have enjoyed. I always say Wyoming's the only state that still has one degree of separation. So if you don't know somebody in a community, you know somebody who knows that person. And you can usually establish that within two or three seconds. You get a camaraderie because you see people in real tough situations. You see them winning, you see them losing. People say that the age of innocence is lost, and, and in a lot of cases that's true. But I think we look at life in a very dear sense and tend to take things at face value and tend to believe people for what they say. Growing up in Wyoming, words meant something. We knew that when you made a promise, you had to keep it, and you would be held accountable for your actions. You know, I remember my dad talking about contracts, and one thing he told me right off was that if you can't shake hands and, and walk away, and uh, expect it to happen, then you, you shouldn't do it. As you watch the major industries of this world turn upside down from illegal actions and stealing and cheating the public, I really think the ethics principles got to come in strong. What's a guy need $250 million a year of salary? You got to have guts. Look, here's who I am. You don't have to agree with me. What do you know for sure anyway? And you learn those things in Wyoming because nobody will let you get away with anything. Everyone knows who can be trusted, who can't. And the best thing anybody can say about anybody is, he's a good guy or gal. Then you know. seconds get judged. It's a Western way of life that hasn't changed over all these years, and I'm proud to be a part of it. We're all competing for the purse. We're all competing against our animal, but I could be 90 points and step off and jump up onto the next buck and shoot and help my friend and cheer him on and hope he rides as best as he can. That's something absolutely unique to rodeo. It's just who's toughest, who can last it out, and who can, who can handle the road, and who can handle the bulls and the bumps and bruises. It's all on your own shoulders to push yourself as hard as you can, and that dictates how successful you're going to be in life and in rodeo in general. In 
in the barrel racing, there are some ladies that are 65 years old that do it, and there are some that are just getting started that are 18. It's a full-time job. When you go to 65 to 70 rodeos, you travel 50 to 75,000 miles a year, and you're around your horses all day, every day. It is hard work. We're happy with who we are. And a lot of people ain't happy with who they are, no matter what they're doing. I can be honest with everybody and anybody. I think they're kind of brought up with that old frontier type hospitality where, you know, our house is your home. If you need something, we're there to help you out. That's the way Wyoming people are. My first impression of this place was I thought it was just a wasteland and I'd have to abide by other people's rules and do what I was told. Personal values and um, ethics were not anywhere in my mind. They can come from broken homes or they're in trouble with their lives, be it drugs or alcohol, failing school. Some of them have been in multiple placements before they get here, you know, from basically all over the United States. What this environment really does for them is simplify their lives. They come here thinking they need everything in the world to be happy, and really it's all internal, it's all in their heart. We can kind of close the door on the world for a little while and help them sober up, get a new direction, and through our ranch work and everything that we are as cowboys, they get introduced to a different culture. There's a code, all right, that if you don't live up to it, you're not going to be in the cattle business very long and somehow we all get pressed through a mold living that life. You're forced to live in truth, Mother Nature. I mean, she might be a mother, but she's no lady, and she can be pretty rough on an old boy, you know? There's no rewards and no punishments, just natural consequences. They start dying to themselves and becoming men through the process. It's a good eye-opener. It definitely changes the way you think changes the way you work, the way you communicate with others, the way you live your life. I love working with animals, and I love doing the whole cowboy thing, getting on a horse, pushing cattle. Yeah, I mean, it has really just taught me how to live my life in a better way. There's way more ethics and way more values here than anywhere that I've ever been to. fathom solving a problem today without animals. When I'm cranky or in a selfish mood or lonely, I go down and spend some time with my horses. When I was a kid, every Indian kid I knew rode. I believe that we get our medicine, we get our strength, we get our spiritual energy from the horse. And I'm a believer that one of the things that has hurt the Wind River Reservation, probably more than any single thing, is that the horse is no longer an active part of our culture. If you see something that needs to be done, do it. That's the way I was raised. A lot of my work has been around trying to build healthy communities helping to bridge the community between the reservation and the city, between the reservation and the state, because the healthier those individuals are, the healthier the whole is.
It's a conservative state, but it's also a state that is willing to hear an idea and talk about it. And if it's a great idea, it'll come around again until it happens. We can have a difference of opinion here. I discovered that for sure, honesty was essential. Nothing that was coming down was so important that you needed to lie in order to get past, ever. It just wasn't. I learned that decisions that are made on emotions were typically not good decisions. What we're getting at here is um, it's fine uh, to have a code of conduct. Enron is known as having one of the most wonderfully written codes of conduct in the private sector. And we know what happened there. Uh, so what we're talking about here is how do, you, how do you really make it alive and make it actually operational in the organization? I think you see that on Wall Street. They're always trying to exceed the last quarter's results. And having the code of the West to live by, I found I no longer wrestle with that. It doesn't matter whether it's long-term or short-term, you do what's right for the company and the customer and the employee. If you have a set of values, if you have a uh, something that you can go back to, it makes things a lot easier if you put it in terms of what's fair to the company, what's fair to the client, and what's fair to yourself. The Code of the West has been part of our bank from the beginning, and that goes to the type of products that we offer, the type of people we hire, um, the decisions we make every day. obligation at the College of Business to make sure we quickly get grounded in real-world experiences and say this is how we can learn from that. We weave the ethical component into principles of accounting, principles of marketing, management, organization, finance. First one is live each day with courage. How can marketers do that? I do believe it is about doing the right thing even when there's a personal or professional cost associated with it. It's not only about doing the right thing, it's about doing the harder right. Okay, it's right legally, yeah, it may be profitable, it may even be right for the shareholders, but it may not be the right thing to do. We expect more of our students. Going beyond success into significance, we take a lot of pride in our cowboy culture in the state of Wyoming, and the Code of the West is just another great vehicle to communicate those principles to our students, and it really resonates. I ask employers, why do you come to Wyoming to recruit our young people? And what they tell me is, we come to Wyoming because your young people know how to work hard and they have character and integrity. A lot of young professionals, they've got all the greatest educations in the world, but they don't know what it's like to be in business, how to make 
decisions that are good professionally, good personally, and we felt like the Code of the West provided a basis for helping us convey things that we felt were important to the way we wanted to do business. I think our staff on the West Coast, as well as in the Midwest, had a little bit of an eye-opening that these principles were not just about cowboys, they were not just about Wyoming, and became much more accepting of those principles. Our success is directly related to the integrity of our employees, and we, we try to do business the right way. Our employees deserve that, our clients deserve that. generation Wyomingite. Our family's been living on this ranch for well over 100 years and that's something that we're extremely proud of. We basically raise a commercial black Angus herd of cattle. We run about 2,500 head of mother cows and we also raise some horses on about 120,000 acres of land. We have a lot of families that help us out with our branding and our shipping and at times like that. We've been broke and we've been droughts and blizzards and everything else, but as a community, we stick together and help each other, and that's what's made it successful. We have four generations of the family here helping move these cattle to the next pasture. We've got to take them to water. It's part of our rotational grazing to keep the land in good shape. We have three girls and one boy in my generation. If it wasn't for the cowgirls around here, nothing would get done. Like every family, we have good times and bad times, but no matter what, we ride for the brand. And the number one goal is keeping the ranch together for the family so that many more generations to come can live and work here. And that's one of the reasons that I got involved in politics and in the state legislature is because there are a lot of outside influences that affect agriculture. And I felt it was my duty to get involved and help affect some of those decisions and to try and educate people as to what Wyoming agriculture is about and what we're trying to do. You know, one thing about out here on the range, one time you get caught lying and you're branded a liar the rest of your life, then people just can't trust you. It is very important out here because it can be life or death to livestock if someone doesn't tell the whole truth about how the water is or where the cattle are or something like that. We live, breathe, and die on this ranch. It doesn't matter rain, shine, snow, we've got to get out and take care of those cows and take care of those horses. It's just something that we do every day. Our heart and soul is into this. We cater to the rodeo and the regular cowboy. The cowboy in any area doesn't make up much of the population, so it's a, it's a pretty small sect of people, and they're wonderful people. They just live life like it should be lived. Dad started out just making saddles and doing small leather work at, at several different places in Sheridan. The guys that are the world's champions in the rodeo end of it, they're using our product, and little Joe that works on the ranch is using our stuff, so that's what keeps us going. I think what holds us together is our help more than anything. They take a lot of pride in what they do. Having the top cowboys in the nation using our gear and our ropes, that's probably the most rewarding statement right there, having somebody else compliment you on doing a good job. Take pride in your work. That's our business plan right there. The 
industry that pays the bill has always been natural gas, oil, and coal. A little bit of trona and a little bit of bentonite, but the cash crop of Wyoming is production of energy and minerals. I think the energy industry is a lot like the early pioneers and the ranchers. We were on our own. We had to figure it out, make it work at a price that the market would accept. And there were good times and bad times. 1992, we drilled the first original well in the Jonah area. Spent a lot of uh, nights right here on this location, hoping that we might have a little bit of success. We made a significant discovery with new technology. It's difficult outside work. You're drilling with moving equipment, and you're also drilling for things that will burn or explode. You're depending upon your co-worker all the time. There's two crews that work 12-hour shifts. They're usually two weeks on, two weeks off. They basically live with the rig as they're drilling and putting in casing. Most of these wells up here are in the 13 or 14,000 foot range. It's a tough life. They're away from their families. The guys work extremely hard. There are no clothing stores. We have one grocery store. So when you do get a day off, you have to drive 100 miles in any direction to buy socks or a new shirt. That's also the reward for remote. We have the Wyoming Range on one side, the Wind River Range on the other. It's beautiful. It's been great for the state of Wyoming as far as revenues to the state, great for America for clean fuel. And someday when the resource is depleted in 50 or 70 years, all this equipment will be removed and it will go back doing what it was doing before 1992. Coal accounts for 50% of the electricity generated nationally. We produce about 1.1 billion tons of coal across the United States, and a full 40% of that comes out of the Powder River Basin of Wyoming. Black Thunder Mine is the largest coal mine in the Western Hemisphere. It represents about 8% of the U.S. coal supply. Coal mining is a relatively simple process that takes a lot of machinery and a lot of people. We start by removing the topsoil, then we remove the overburden and expose the coal. The coal is removed, the hole that is left, the overburden goes back in. We put the topsoil back on and reseed it. We use no fertilization, no irrigation, and you can see that it comes back abundantly. This used to be a coal mine right here. In the middle of the lake, there's an island for nesting birds such as geese and ducks. And if you look right down at the water's edge, it is very shallow where deer, elk, antelope can wade out into the water and drink. And then it dives off into a deep water fishery. So once we turn this back to the Forest Service, they will manage it as a recreation site in perpetuity. definitely putting the land to another use. The wind farm on a reclaimed coal mine that used to produce coal for the Dave Johnson power plant from 1942 up to 1996. The Dave Johnson plant is doing retrofits to meet the emission standards for the next 50 years. They produce 800 megawatts of power daily. Last year we put in 158 GE 1.5 wind turbines. These turbines produce 1.5 megawatts. That should operate around four to 500 homes. I don't see a point in time at this time that we would see 
renewable energy producing all the energy America uses. We will supplement a lot of it, but the diversity would be the answer. By 2030, we would like to say that 20% of the energy be produced by renewable energy resources, whether it be wind, solar, hydro, or thermal. Wyoming is starting to be one of the top states to be in the wind industry. The wind classes out here are around five and six, so they are steady for most of the year. You know, that's one thing as Wyomingites that we pride ourselves on. We love the outdoors. And to be able to come out and say, this is what we've done. This is what we're leaving behind. This is finishing what we started. I'm from a small town in north central Wyoming. It's got about 60, 70 people. Actually, our population sign still says 100. <laughs> so it hasn't been changed in um, as long as I can remember. Typically, what showing any species of cattle takes is a lot of intense work in order to maintain a good-looking steer that will be a competitive steer at shows. So not only will they be getting values like patience, dedication, as well as a good work ethic, they will also be building relationships with others that they meet. The State Fair represents our Western culture, involvement with horse and livestock activities, crop production, and that's what these grounds represent, is all of the, that heritage and history of youth development and youth activities year-round. It takes a lot of heart and dedication in being who you are, and I feel like that's what the code is trying to teach us, is how to be yourself and how to remember the important things in life. We try to preserve the Western lifestyle, and that just it means a whole lot to me because not many places still do this kind of thing. They go to the store and just, oh, they're gonna buy this. And that's what's so amazing about Raise Your Own because you know exactly what you fed it. You know that it's quality. A lot of times we concentrate so much on the animals with fair events, but we forget that they're people events. Very similar to the experiences that you gain by being on a sports team, responsibility and attention to detail, and just the working relationship with other people. I think that being an FFA and learning the self-discipline and learning the work ethic, you learn so much from it. It will make for a successful future. Heart is the most important thing. If you don't have heart, you don't have that love for something, that enthusiasm, you're not going to put everything you have into it, and it's going to show. What I like about um, working on a farm is that I get to drive big equipment. West-type community as a state. The entire community rallies around the Western identity that uh, cowboys and, and rodeo really represent. People can learn a lot from the old Western way of life. That old cowboy try, don't give up. Oh, I tell you what, it takes a lot of heart to rodeo. You find out what kind of person you really are inside. 
What America can learn from Wyoming is courage. The cowboy life is all for real. Uh, there's nothing phony about it. You just learn to live with nature. You don't fight nature. It's, it is how it is, and so we try to be prepared. I think my particular set of values came from my pioneer ancestry and the struggles they went through and the realization of what was important. We're a very diverse and independent group of people. We don't agree on everything, but I think the rest of the country could take a lesson from the way we respect each other's opinions. You certainly find common ground and learn to work with people. We're independent in our nature, but we depend on our neighbors. People believe in what they're working for. They love what they do, and therefore they strive to be the best at it. Don't ever confuse a position of power, a large salary with success. Success is all about finding something that you believe in and that you believe you can make a difference in that's beyond yourself. If you quit taking pride in it, if you're just doing the job, then, then it really is time to move on. If you ride for the brand, you take some ownership. It's about people that still care about people. They haven't forgot who they are or where they came from. They're comfortable in their own skin, and they still have their solid foundation of good principles that they live by every day. The code of the West is what we live by. You treat people with respect, and if you say you're going to do something, you do it. My motto is, if you climb in the saddle, be ready for the ride. You don't try to bend the rules or try to figure out a way to get around doing something. Be tough but fair. Short-term profitability doesn't pay. So you have to look for ways to create situations with win-win relationships. And we'd like to be able to leave whatever we're doing better for the ones that are following us. I think spending time here um, out in the open spaces helps you kind of figure out who you are and I think that's important for all of us is, is to learn who we are first before we can really be who we should be to others. You just live by it uh, without even realizing it. I think the code of the West is alive and well in Wyoming. It's not a corny thing. It's a day's work for a day's pay, a, a do the right thing. It's called trust. The Code of the West is not just for Wyoming, it's not just for cowboys. It is about heart and it is about passion.
Imagine that the government comes to you and says that in seven days you must vacate your house. What do you do with your property? What do you do with your crops that are in the field? What do you do about your pets? Fear. Fear, ignorance, 120,000 plus Japanese and Japanese Americans were taken from their families, from their homes, had to leave their businesses. It was shameful to be in a camp like criminals. These are American citizens just like you're an American citizen. After Pearl Harbor, the government put Japanese Americans into camp under the pretext that it was impossible to tell the loyal from the disloyal. They said, we simply can't tell, so let's just lock them all up. People were rounded up. They had to go to a, an assembly center. Picture someone saying, you have a suitcase, and it's only this big. Suitcases now are much bigger, so I always make sure to tell them it's only this big. Someone tells you, you, you have a day. You have to figure out what you're going to put in that suitcase, and you have to leave, and you're not sure when you're coming back. And some of them went to a relocation center and then went to um, they call them camps. They didn't learn a lot about it in school, really at all. There was like three sentences, I think I remember, in our textbooks about the internment camps. And of course now, looking back on it, it's horrible. It's a horrible thing to have happen to any, any person, let alone an American citizen. They were told, it's your behavior. It's your remembering your cultural heritage that made you vulnerable to this when the reality of it was, it was your skin color and the way you looked. Some people were in camps for four years. I, I mean, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine not knowing where I was gonna be for a week, much less years go by. Oh, here it is. And then there's the door. This was the door. So I can't imagine a family of six people living in this little space right here. Down. Coming back here and seeing this is, uh, gosh, I don't know if I have words. tragic, you know, as far as um, what they must have been feeling while they were living here and uh, not knowing what the future held. But it's amazing to think that 7,500 people were compacted into this little area. Well, immediately after Pearl Harbor, within 24 to 48 hours, um, the FBI had 
begun to round up prominent members of the community, President Roosevelt assembled uh, the Roberts Commission and charged the commission with determining what the causes were of Pearl Harbor. One of its most um, meaningful conclusions was that there had been Japanese spies on the islands in Hawaii, but there was no evidence that Japanese Americans were involved in that spying. Nevertheless, um, widespread public panic, politicians, the press, and certain business interests, and the military as well, combined to make for a very strong argument against Japanese Americans and their civil rights. It wasn't until February when uh, President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066 that enabled the imprisonment of Japanese Americans. So what we can surmise from that is that the public sentiment was very much, in the West at least, very much in favor of the removal, the incarceration, the imprisonment of Japanese and Japanese Americans. Evacuation. More than 100,000 men, women, and children, all of Japanese ancestry, removed from their homes in the Pacific Coast state to wartime communities established in out-of-the-way places. Two-thirds of the evacuees are American citizens by right of birth. The rest are their Japanese-born parents and grandparents. The people are not under suspicion. They are not prisoners. They are not internees. They are merely dislocated people, the unwounded casualties of war. No matter what, no matter how long they had been in this country, no matter their cultural practices, no matter their ability to speak English or not speak English, no matter their having been educated in United States schools, no matter what, they remained indelibly racially other, which is to say, in the case of Japanese Americans, they remained Japanese loyal to Japan. So in the case of Japanese Americans, many of them conducted fire sales, put up for sale their cars, their farm equipment, their refrigerators, their furniture, and of course got pennies for the dollar. My family on my dad's side were all imprisoned in the camp. So they had to sell their house, their, their home, uh, and then they were moved from their home to Santa Anita Racetrack. And they uh, lived there uh, for a number of months uh, in a horse stall. And so imagine that, moving from a house into a horse stall. From there, they boarded a train uh, at, that transported them from LA out to here. So um, you're packing in, you know, almost seven and a half thousand people in a very small confined area. Roughly 7,300 and some people at its peak, which for the state of Colorado at that time, it was the 10th largest concentration, concentration of people at the time in the state. We are actually in the uh, 12H block barrack that has been reconstructed. Uh, this would be a uh, family unit and anywhere from 10 to 12 individuals would be actually in this room. A light in the center of the room with a pull cord, uh, wooden cots, army cots, one pail, 
so they can either get water from the bathroom unit or get coal from the uh, coal chutes uh, that are outside for the one potbelly stove that would heat the room. Most of everybody that came to uh, Machi, the majority of them, will be from uh, Southern California, Los Angeles, and Versailles County. A lot of, um, of the Japanese Americans from Southern California had never even seen snow. And to live through snow in, in a building that has no insulation with huge icicles hanging off of it. It's a military style camp. Uh, you had one mess hall per block. You had 12 barracks on each side of that mess hall. Then you had a laundry unit that had running water. Then you had a bathroom unit. And basically you had three stalls Okay, so it'd be about 125 people per stall on the uh, bathroom units. And they were communal, and of course you didn't have any privacy. You look at some of the individuals that were brought here, you're talking about lawyers, doctors, ministers, um, uh, very, very professional people. And they went from being very, very successful in Los Angeles, some of them doing very, very, very well, to having to sell everything they own and coming here to lose it all. So my grandfather had uh, dug a hole somewhere around here uh, and uh, to uh, store my aunt and uncle's uh, baby formula. It looks like it goes back to the I could see that. Yeah, oh, that's nuts. That's crazy. That's crazy. We see uh, a replica of the barrack. We see a uh, uh, the original wa water tower is back up, has been restored and is back up. Um, we see one of the uh, uh, replica of one of the guard towers that is up. We're standing on the cemetery here at Amachi. Well, there were, I think, uh, 120 people that died at this camp. So they had hospitals, they had police stations, they had fire departments. So they did everything um, they could to make this um, home mindful of the guard tower that is uh, right outside this barrack that was manned by MP units with 50 caliber machine guns and German shepherds. Let's see here. This is a picture of the family before, this must be right before we went into the camp. I was born in Los Angeles, California, June 22nd, 1941. I believe my father was born in Washington State and my mother was born in Oregon. And their parents were American citizens also. We've got a good history of uh, citizenship. And we were in the internment camp in uh, Heart Mountain, Wyoming, before we came to Denver. That's me, and that's my brother. And we're both in the camp by that time. When we left California, I was under a year old and my brother was, what, two and a half years older than I. So my mother had her hands full. And of course, 
there were no paper diapers. She said that she was very fortunate because she had a wagon and she could put us in a wagon. The other thing that she had was uh, an electric iron. Uh, if you remember the, that sole plate on the electric iron, she used to, she said she'd turn it upside down and heat uh, food for me on, the, on that sole plate. There weren't many pictures, you know, for a long time they prohibited cameras in the camp. I must have been close to four coming out. I think this was right when we came back or came to Colorado or to Denver. That was my mom and my brother and I. Now, over time, uh, Japanese Americans were very uh, resourceful. There's a Japanese word, it's called gaman. It basically means um, just deal with the cards that you're dealt and move on and don't make waves. And that's what they did. Many of them tried to grow gardens outside of their barracks. And they tried to make as normal of a life as possible for the sake of their children. And so within the camps, eventually, um, there were schools that had um, classrooms. There were very, very crude um, medical facilities, and there were mess halls. And I think a lot of the reason why um, maybe afterwards people didn't look at it as this huge travesty that it really was was because of the resilience of the people who went to the camps. And they went and they knew, okay, we're going to be here, we don't know for how long, so let's set up a school. This is my grandfather, my mom's um, father, and my mom's mother. This is my mom. Um, she's one of 12. So my mom, her, her name is Ruby, and she passed away, well, this is hard, three years ago. So she was born in California. Both my parents were interned. My mom was at um, Tule Lake and Topaz. My dad was in Heart Mountain. So we actually have um, yearbooks from when my dad was at Heart Mountain. Then this is a brochure from the Heart Mountain Relocation Center that my dad just stuck in here. Um, and it tells a little about the camp. And this I found really interesting. The first thing you see is the American flag. So this was when my, this is the last year book before the camp closed. And this is when my dad was a junior. So this is very interesting. All these girls, two guys up there, and here's my dad. Um, this was an organization called the Boys League, which I'm not really sure what it is, but that's my dad. And he also, a picture from when he was at the, uh, played baseball. This is that picture, so he's there. If you look on the other side of it, it is typical teenager when you look at things that people wrote, like you're a swell guy. <laughs> it says, Doug, may you have the best of luck and happiness. Just a friend, Ruby. It's really interesting, my mom's name is Ruby, but this is not my mom. This is a different Ruby. My mom hadn't met my dad at this point. You know, 